From Bumble Australia and Shameless Media, this is Love Etc. When my love takes me home, it's one of five to thirty miles on. You're enough, but how do you truly recognise that? Welcome to Love Etc., where your hosts, Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Hello, you're listening to Love Etc., a podcast by Bumble Australia, the social networking app where women make the first move. On today's episode, the final episode of the season, we explore the radical idea that you don't actually need anyone, that you as a vibrant and vivacious human are already complete. So in order to do that, we sat down with Juliana, who learned far younger than she should have, that sometimes a romantic partner will fail you in ways you never thought possible. But it was through that that she found love elsewhere in her friends, in her family, and in herself. But before we actually meet Juliana Mish, considering this is the last episode of Love Etc., I'd love to chat with you about what the season has taught you about relationships and dating and love and what you've actually taken away most from the last 12 episodes. God, I've taken away so much. I think the one that will stay with me for the longest is probably actually the cheating episode just because I find the different perspectives on the one controversial topic to be so fascinating. But I think the theme from the season is probably women's unencumbered ability to love and love deeply, even when they've got broken heart, even when they're grieving, even when they have a history of rejection or betrayal. I think that our relationships really do define so much of who we are and what we believe and how we live and meeting these women and hearing their stories and talking to them was such a privilege. I have loved hearing all of the different kinds of stories because it's not very common that you get to go deep with people that quickly and get them to tell your story from start to end straight away. Totally. For me, I would say the most surprising thing that's come out of this entire thing has been how many women struggle with painful sex. And I know when we did that episode very early on in the season, we reeled out those stats, right? Like 20% of women struggle with sex being painful. But it's not until you actually see faces to the names and names in your inbox and people saying to me after that episode went live that they had struggled with the same thing but not realised that there was a name for it, a condition for it, treatment for it, that has kind of blown my mind that this has existed underground in a pretty murky, dark way for a long time. Yeah, and I think seeing the DMs that we got even on the Shameless Podcast Instagram page was crazy to me. But then also you on your personal Instagram received so many DMs from so many women where that episode, actually, I hate sex, meant so much to them. So that as well has been such a joy in shining a light on the topics and the experiences that women have that we don't talk enough about. Yeah, the ones that bring a whole heap of shame or we have a lot of shame about. But of course, Mish, it wouldn't be an episode of Love Etc. today without one last amazing competition from our friends at Bumble, the social networking (laughs) app. where women do make the first move. Absolutely. This week, Zara Bumble are giving you guys the chance to win a trip to Thailand. I would love a trip to Thailand right now. The competition is launching at 9am on Friday, the 23rd of August. So that means this morning, if you are listening to this episode as it drops, and it's offering one winner the chance to win a trip for two to Thailand. The prize includes a four-night stay in a pool villa at Avani in Koh Samui with return flights from their closest international airport. The competition closes on September 6th, so 
as always, download Bumble today and make the first move for your chance to win. Before we actually get into our interview with Juliana Zara and jump into this final episode, I do want to give Bumble Australia a massive thank you. Thank you for being the woman-led, woman-founded tech company that connects us and empowers us, whether that's to excel in our careers or find new friends or find a new romance. Bumble champions strong women, and we personally could not love them anymore. Absolutely. And if you guys have loved this series, download the Bumble app on your phone for free and enjoy the dating mode as well as Bumble BFF and Bumble Biz. But for now, that is all from us. Here is the intelligent, insightful, and effervescent Juliana, whose own tale says everything about how love comes in all sizes, shapes, and stories. When Juliana met James, she was just 19 years old. So it was in my first year of uni and we were both on the losing side of a student politics teams essentially Um, and the irony was that we were both sort of starting to get involved in youth politics and kind of left-wing political movements but we weren't running with the Labor team we're running like against it and we sort of met at like the commiseration party and it was at the Dudagala Hotel which is I don't know if you've ever been to the Dude in Newmarket on a Friday night it is so scummy. Just 30-year-olds who just still want to, like, have a rave but dancing to music from 1995. So that sets the scene for you. And he was standing at the bar and he looked up at me and he's like, Jules! And I'm like, hello? And he's like, oh, you know, it's, it's James. You know? I'm like, oh, hi. And then we sort of, you know, he bought me a drink and went from there. And it was, I, it was he was my first partner. And from there on, we were sort of like... Inseparable. How old were you at this point? I was 19. You were 19. Mm. And what drew you to him? Um, we both, I remember that night we both talked about housing affordability and equality. <laughs> sexy and romantic. So sexy. I was just like, you know, once he said, you know, housing affordability, I just, you know, my clitoris started going. <laughs> um, but it was sort of... We talked about it was it was so nice to find someone who wo- who had social skills who was also passionate about politics as well because can be a little challenging to find. So we also were both into hiking and sport and um, having a good time as well. Like we were kind of interested in the same. We were at the same point in our lives, so it seemed like a really good fit. We talked the whole night, and then everyone else was going to get kebabs. And I was like, oh, are we going with everyone else to get a kebab? And he was like, oh, no, I don't, I don't like kebabs. Why don't, you, why don't we just go home? <laughs> and he realised that that was the pick-up line. That was, I don't like kebabs. It was the pick-up line. I was like, oh, my God, OK. So anyway, we went home together. And, yeah, I think then we had lunch the next Monday at uni. And from there on, it was pretty much inseparable which was weird for me can I just say because I I don't know whether it's because I didn't have a boyfriend as a teenager or whether I was just born really independent and raised really independent but I never considered myself as a person in a relationship so when I had one it actually took a long time to get used to because I was like am I you know am I meant to do things together do I have to consider not you know consider the other person but then 
it was a weird definition. The early days were so nice. I grew up in Northcote and he grew up in South Melbourne and so I spent a lot of time exploring South Melbourne and it was sort of like September, October-ish and that part of the world is just so beautiful around that time of year and so I have these really beautiful memories of walking along Port Melbourne Beach um, and with the dogs because his mother was a vet so animals were everything so that was really nice Um, and we both lived at home so it was also kind of like I don't know, independence as well, like going and staying with his parents and he'd come and stay with my parents and, yeah, it was really lovely. I think it was exactly what a first relationship should be. It didn't take her long to realise that maybe for the first time ever she was actually in love. It was, you know, Banff Um, and their Monday night pizzas and there was this song playing and it was... You know, it was like a boy and bear song. It was really corny. And it sort of just, I just realised. I was like, oh my God, I'm in love. The moment that you know you're in love with someone is a very distinct shift in your thinking from when you know that you just like someone and that you have affection for them, I think. And so when you realise that, it's sort of like this whole new world opens up. And... I know this is so lame, but you know how people say it's better to have loved and lost than never loved at all? I think that's so important and so true because there is a real shift in what you think is possible and what, you know, your gut will tell you and what you'll do from that moment that you are in love. So I think that, yeah, it was that moment and then the Friday night we were in bed together and we sort of had this competition about, like, who's going to say it first? And it's like, you say it, no, you say it, you say it. And in the end, he said it first. For a little while there, things went along as normal. Jules kept on with uni, the two got more involved with politics, and then they moved in together. 19, I'd finished my first year of uni, he'd finished his third, um, both at Melbourne Uni. He was doing science and I was doing arts. Um, But he sort of failed a couple of subjects, you know, and kind of, or, you know, took time off. So he um, hadn't quite finished at the end of his third year. Um, We're both getting involved in the political movement. So to kind of set the scene, 2013, so Labor have just lost government federally and uh, and the Liberals are in in Victoria. So it was an interesting time to get involved because 2014 was an election year and he applied to be a campaign organiser that year for 2014 and then... um, And he got the job and it was really exciting um, and I started getting involved in... um, the Young Labor Movement as well and then shortly after I got a job as a campaign organiser as well and 2014 was great. It was such an exploration of my values and my views and you know my first real job and then in 2015 we moved out together so uh, we moved into a share house in Richmond which was really fun. Like it was chaotic and destructive and messy but it was sort of like what you imagine the you know the first share house should be. And we also lived with two other young Labor people. So, like, one was working in the union movement. James, at this point, was a a ministerial advisor because Labor had just won government. I was working um, as an electorate officer, finishing off my degree, and then we had another housemate who was working in the Fed, so it was just, like, fucking politics central. I mean, now I think about it, so unhealthy. Get something else in your life, please. But it it was so fun for those first couple of years, so... That was sort of 2015. And then I started feeling unwell in mid-2016. And mid-2016 kind of coincided with a whole lot of other things. But in mid-2016, things started to go downhill just a little bit for Jules, James and his family. 
James's parents had just had an incredibly messy divorce the year before and he hadn't spoken to his father for a year. He also felt like he was at a bit of a crisis point with what he wanted to do with his career. He kind of hadn't finished his uh, degree. I'd just been elected president of Young Labor and although, you know, we did support each other, I think there was an element of him that he found it very difficult, me being as successful and more successful than him. And we had a lot of discussion about that. And I, you know, I'm very close to my parents, so we had big chats about that and what it meant. So kind of mid-2016, things started to go wrong. And I also got this really terrible pain in my back, sort of like just below my left shoulder. And I also started to find this sort of like just this lump in my breast that I kind of thought was, you know, period pain. And over the next kind of four months, my pain was getting worse and I was going to the osteo and then kind of wasn't getting, you know, any better and the physio. Meanwhile, James is, you know, decided to go back to uni but is just terribly unhappy, is partying really hard. So that was sort of where we were at by sort of November 2016. Was she happy? Maybe, she says. With hindsight, Juliana says maybe there was more bubbling below the surface than perhaps she realised at the time. I still loved him and we still loved each other. I thought I was. And the more I think about it and also the more my parents tell me about how traumatic things really were, I, was, I think there was a lot of pretending going on about how fine things were. To add another layer of pain to what would soon become an incredibly complicated relationship, in 2013, Juliana was assaulted at a party. She carried and continues to carry the weight of that night years after the fact. Another factor, just to, you know, throw it into the mix, is that um, shortly before James and I got together in 2013, about six months before, um, I was raped at a party. So kind of in 2016... Look, he was fantastic in supporting me through kind of counselling and Casa House and Northern Casa, but sort of by mid-2016, I'd just gone through this group therapy program and it was actually, it was really affecting our sex life as well and kind of post-traumatic stress symptoms and stress disorder presents in a whole lot of different ways and for me it was at night. So when I'd be home alone on Saturday nights and he wasn't home, it was just such so anxious like I was so anxious all the time and that I think affected how happy we were more than I realized and then in 2016 everything began to unravel in a way no 22 year old can prepare for November 2016 yeah walk us through that time so I hadn't slept properly since probably the September of that year and James was not on kilter and I guess you know we weren't connecting sexually um, a lot like we were like we're still having sex a lot normal amount I don't know but we weren't connecting and I was like look I'm just gonna get through this period of sleeping and my anxiety and then we're gonna deal with you and we're gonna work out your issues and it's gonna be fine I kind of was always looking at the long game and I just in between finishing my arts degree in mid-November 2016 and the beginning of 2017 where I was due to start my Juris Doctor I started working for a senator so I was really busy Canberra lifestyles another discussion altogether but this fucking pain wasn't going away and on the 3rd of November um, or sort of earlier than that 
couple of weeks earlier, I had a, I went back to the GP and I was like, what's going on? It's just not getting better. She's like, okay, let's have a scan. Um, and there was, uh, I had an X-ray and a blood test and there were some abnormalities, so I just went and had a CT. And I wasn't really thinking about what it was. It was most likely fibromyalgia or crostochondritis, which is like the swelling between where the ribs and cartilage meet. I really wasn't concerned at all. And then, yeah, on the 3rd of November, we were asked to go in and have a chat to her. And she told me that it was bone cancer. So how does a 22-year-old who's living with a boyfriend in a relationship that's not going smoothly, who is dealing with sexual assault trauma, who is dealing with the breakdown of her boyfriend's family, then deal with a cancer diagnosis on top of all of that? I think you go, it could always be worse. And I had an incredibly supportive family. We were middle class, so we, you know, had a safety net. I had finished my degree. I had a boyfriend that loved me. And I had my house and I had a really strong sense of self. And you just go, well, this is what we're doing. And I remember sitting in that doctor's surgery and James, like, he was very much in shock and he put his head in his hands. And I, and I always go back to this moment because I always think about it as the moment that, you know, back then you truly loved me. And he, was, he had his head in his hands and I put our photos together and I said, we're going to get through this. It's going to be fine. We're going to do this together. And he sort of nodded, but he was just in absolute despair. And later on, I would say to my mum and my dad, like, he cried then for me. He, he loved me then. And my dad said, well, maybe he wasn't crying for you. Maybe he was crying for you himself. And I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, was he? I don't know. I don't know. I think when you... When you have a dodgeball thrown at you, what are you going to do? Are you just going to lie there? You, no, you're going to keep playing, like... You know, you've always just got to keep going. It didn't take Juliana long to realise James wasn't responding to her diagnosis in a way she either wanted or needed. I think it was a few weeks in. I think at first he was really good because although things happen really quickly um, when you get a cancer diagnosis, particularly bone cancer, which doesn't have a great survival rate the past five years for this age group things go fast but they also go really slow and I think it kind of started off like him making certain comments like stop complaining or when I would be can you please just stay home this Saturday night and just be with me he'd be like well you just don't want me to go out because you can't go out like you can't stop me having fun and I would be like oh my god okay (laughs) But yet we were sort of still trying to kind of piece it together and I think, I just don't think he could deal with me being unwell. Like, he couldn't bear it when I was up, like when I couldn't do things and it was just, it was those, it was those comments that really kind of struck me. And then what happened was that, you know, pre-existing to my diagnosis, 2017 was going to be a new start for both of us. I was going to start my master's and he um, wanted to go back and do a second degree as well. And because of sort of the way he'd done in his undergrad, he wasn't going to get into a postgrad medicine degree, so it would be an undergrad. And I was pretty flippant about where I did my degree, you know. As much as I wanted to kind of do it in Melbourne, I was sort of happy to go where he got into medicine. And the only place that he got into was uh, in New South Wales. And... He got in sort of around 
early January and then there was no discussion with me about what he was going to do. Like, was he going to go? Was he going to stay? Was he going to defer? How are we going to manage it? And every time I tried to have the conversation, he'd be like, don't worry, don't worry, we'll talk about it later. And then when it really came down to decision time, he just excluded me from it. He just had the discussion totally with his mum. And then he came back two weeks before he was due to leave and said, yeah, I'm going. Uh, I'm going to do it. And I was like, so you're going in two weeks. I'm not able to care for myself. Am I going to have to pay the rent for two of us? Am I going to have to clear out all our shit myself? Like, what's going to happen? And it was sort of from then on that everything just totally... It didn't totally break down because... I was, I was so desperate for him to stay and, but at the same time I was so angry and I was so betrayed and I just kept going in my head like what are people going to think of me? Like why are people going to think, you know, she must have been such a terrible girlfriend that he wouldn't even stay with her when she had cancer and I know that's totally irrational but that's how I felt and I was so anxious about that and so I was kind of felt like if I pretended I wasn't sick or I didn't complain emotionally, he would stay and there, like, there was something that I could do to make him stay and he just didn't. Like, he just didn't and we had a really, uh, like we had a falling out sort of, you know, the day before he, he left and we didn't talk, well, yeah, the day before he left was sort of in between one of my chemo treatments and I don't know whether you guys know much about chemotherapy but... You know, so mine were five days and they were all in hospital and then sort of a week after that, you, that's when you start to get really sick. Um, and so that, you know, coincided with him leaving, the really sick point. And, you know, I sort of just ended up hanging out in hospital and ICU for a little bit. because Not because of that, but just it's so incredible how much emotional stress can really play on your physical health as well. So was this rock bottom? Was this the point she realised things couldn't get any worse? No, because it could always be worse. I still had my family. I still had an amazing group of friends. I still, like, my workplace was incredibly supportive. They, you know, they, were, they worked out these pay arrangements and everything. Like, it could be worse. And I also didn't let myself process it at that point either. So... We didn't talk for two weeks afterwards and then I went in for my... Which is the longest we had, like, ever spoken, not spoken. And then we... He spoke to me again when I was due to go into my next chemo treatment and from then on we were sort of texting um, and talking most days and it was sort of like our relationship then began to mimic what it once was, but it wasn't you know and you know the right things were being said and appeared to be being done he flew down for my surgery and told everyone that he was flying down for my surgery so kind of um easter that year i had my ribs um, and breast and a bit of my lung removed um and he came down for that but then he went to a music festival a few days later while i was still in hospital and it sucked because the procedure didn't work as well as it could have and I'd have another one and he wasn't there and I think I sort of just accepted it and um, also if you have bone operations you get ketamine via drip. So you're at your own music festival? I was at my own music festival like couldn't dance too much but god I was I was so calm. I was 
amazing. Um, so I, th- I don't think I kind of registered it. And again, it was that thing about if I cause a fuss, then it's not going to come at all. And I couldn't deal with, oh, my God, they're going to think she was the worst partner ever. And I, I wasn't ready to be the single one either, like with cancer, I think. I think it, it, for me at that time, and not anymore, but it just had this connotation that I didn't like. And so I sort of just pretended, like we were both just pretending. Juliana says the longer the two spend apart, the more distance that was between them, the less sure of the relationship she became. In this case, distance didn't make the heart grow fonder at all. And we sort of just kind of broke away from one another a little bit. I would, I... One of the downsides um, that after they took out my tumour, they found that the first leukaemia hadn't really worked that well. So it should have been 90% dead, and that's when you kind of just have, like, the last sort of 10 rounds of chemo. But um, mine was only 50% dead. So I had to have a bone marrow transplant. And that what that involves is sort of, like, six... It involves kind of three weeks in the hospital, and you have chemotherapy really high the highest kind of dose that you can have for six days and then um you it kills all your bone marrow and then you get bone marrow retransplanted in there because bone marrow is where your cells grow so I had that and I sort of realized that when I was having it and I had so much support from all these other people in my life I didn't need it and didn't need him and I it was sort of funny. I said to him at that point, you know, I think I'm, I'm ready to start seeing other people and I think, you know, it might be, you know, time. And it was so weird. From that moment on, he then just texted me every day, like until September. And it was just like, it was just weird. It was like, but wait, you're not here to be my partner, but when I say that I want to move on, you're not there. But I think it really fell apart properly when firstly I was able to be strong enough to kind of um, like and healthy enough to start getting back into my life and kind of reflecting on where I was at with that Um, and then it also coincided with suddenly him getting a new girlfriend (laughs) who was like six years younger than him and I think like because I was sort of over a lot of the, not over the trauma, but out of the thick of it with the treatment, I could suddenly have all the classic breakup emotions, like fury and jealousy and anger. And I was furious. I was like, six weeks ago, you said, you don't know, you know, you can't move on from me. And now you've got this girlfriend that you're bringing down to Melbourne. This was December, a year after Juliana was diagnosed with bone cancer. And then, like, he wanted me to go to his friendship group Christmas party that the girlfriend was going to be at that didn't tell me that he, she existed. And I was like, what the fuck, man? For so many, the worst part about any breakup is losing your best friend. Juliana says for her, losing her best friend was a big part of an even greater mess of that time. I lost him when he checked out. He checked out in January 2017. Like, and to be honest, after he left, it was almost easier because I didn't have that desire for him to be there all the time. I wanted him to be there, but I wanted my James. I didn't want this new James 
who was sort of, you know, putting himself first. And I think I've done a, a lot of reflection, as you can imagine. And I get that he had to make a decision. He was faced with a decision where he didn't know what he was doing with his life. He was in a rut. He was 25, turning 26, and he just wanted... He felt like time was the enemy and he needed to get started on something. But in the end, at that point, he made the decision, you know, it was between me and him, and he chose himself. And... I would like to think that if I was in that situation, I wouldn't choose myself, but that was the decision that he made and it was that point that he was no longer my best friend anymore. And that was that. You're early 20s. You've just been diagnosed with cancer. Your boyfriend breaks up with you. Having good friends and family are one thing, but how do you find something in yourself to pull you through? What do you find in yourself to crawl out of that? It's funny when you ask when was rock bottom, right? Rock bottom wasn't probably until 2018. And I think that I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I want to be, I want, I want to work for social justice and I, I want to do that through the law or through politics. And I think that that was more important to me than it was feeling sorry for myself and trust me I do a lot of feeling sorry for myself like and a lot of you know this is my one there um but I think you've just like you just remember what your purpose is and that can help I think that's what I did outside of understanding her purpose Jewel said it was her family and friends that fulfilled her in that time oh my family and my friends and my community like 100 percent. although this is a story about you know, my resilient. It's very much the story of my mum and my dad and my brother all together because we're a unit and we did it all together. I, I was thinking about this recently and I thought, just say, life, if it's a metaphor, is all of us holding those, you know, really flimsy plastic cups and it's full of water and basically all we're trying to do is just protect our cup and just keep going and walking around making sure we've got a full cup because that's our fulfilment. And I think what cancer did was it kind of emptied my cup and then what James did was it it shattered it and it, you know, it ripped it up. But what everyone around me did was they helped me rebuild my cup and refilled it. And that was, you know, I can still walk around holding my, my little cup now. And I think that knowing that someone cares about you is really, really important. And everyone really struggles to know what to say to someone when something bad happens to them. Like, I still really struggle sometimes. And I think the best thing you can say is just that I'm thinking about you. And, you know, I, I acknowledge that it's difficult for you right now. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sending you support. Like, I'm not religious at all, but my auntie very much is. And she would send me a message every night before I went to sleep. I love you. I'm praying for you. And even just that really does help you, you know, keep going and, and pull yourself up. How is your health now? Awesome awesome yeah. like I it takes a long time to get over a bone marrow transplant because um you because you've you've fucking regrown every cell in your body you know um and last year was really hard sort of with chronic fatigue and and dealing with a lot of the the James stuff sort of a year later but I'm fine now like I'm playing soccer again and I'm studying and I'm working and yeah I'm having a social life again oh my god I can stay out till past midnight so 
great. <laughs> and are you dating again? What's your attitude to dating? Yeah, look, it's interesting. I mean, part of it is like a, a practicality thing. I'm not really, like I kind of am, but not really. Um, because what happens often if young women have chemotherapy is that you uh, lose your fertility, uh, which, and I had my ovary removed, so I um, kind of have gone into early onset menopause. And I also lost my breast. So there's a bit of practical, like, nuisance and, like, you know, it's funny how connected to your all your lower GI is to sex. So that's sort of like a practical element. But, I mean, I actually don't feel like I need it right now. Like, I'm so at peace with, you know, this really strong relationship that I have with my parents and my housemates that I don't want someone to intrude on that. And I just, I don't think I need it right now. But I also, I don't fear that I never will love again because I was given so much love that I want to pay that forward again and I think that I can love someone really strongly but when it happens it happens and right now you know I've I've got exactly what I need in my life without you know romantic love. What have you learned about love in the last few years? Well funny you say that. I think romantic love is just totally overplayed and uh, I, th- I can only speak from being conditioned as women but and it might be the same for men but at least as women we're conditioned that we have to find a man and that or you know but it's you know it's the patriarchy so it's about men um, and for somehow you're less worthy if you don't find them so we, we live in this world where romantic love is the ultimate and I just don't think it is anymore like at this point in my life romantic love failed me and but, like, it, it didn't mean that I was less worthy or that I was less loved. What it meant was just other types of love filled the space. So whether it was, you know, my best friend just listening to me and workshopping my emotions and, you know, giving me a bracelet that says Stronger Together that we both wear or whether it was my family just being there. There are so many different kinds of love that never get enough attention and... I think that if you don't have a bit of all of that love, it doesn't have to be romantic love and it shouldn't just be romantic love. Thank you so much for listening to Love Etc. What an absolute ride it has been. Thank you so much to Jules and to every woman who came on our show to tell their love story, big, small, searing and hopeful. Love Etc. has been a production from Shameless Media. Sign up to Bumble Australia, the social networking app where women make the first move towards friendship, professional and romantic relationships. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much.